today from the Global Lane, ballots by mail, the risky way of changing how America votes. The Democrats are now asking people to trust their ballots to these political operatives. Fox and Friends co-host, author Brian Kilmeade on Washington corruption, leadership, Sam Houston and the Alamo Avengers. Skipping college and COVID-19, high school seniors taking a gap year, and criminalizing haircuts. How many state troopers does it take to serve a 77-year-old Michigan barber a cease and desist order? And it's all right here on the Global Lane. Choosing the U.S. president by mail or casting your ballot from your smartphone. What do you think of that? California Governor Gavin Newsom just signed an executive order allowing registered voters in the USA's most populous state to vote by mail. And he's ordered that ballots be sent to them for the upcoming November general election. Giving them the choice uh, not to feel like they have to go into a concentrated, dense environment where their health may be at risk, but provide an additional asset and additional resources by way of voting by mail. And it's not just in California. The push is on to bring voting by mail to your state. But what are the ramifications? Well, here to share some thoughts is Eric Eggers. Mr. Eggers is the research director of the Government Accountability Institute and author of Fraud, How the Left Plans to Steal the Next Election. Hi, Eric. It's good to see you again. And I know you wrote recently that buried on page 643 of the Coronavirus Aid, Relief and Economic Security Act is funding for states to conduct elections by mail. Please explain, because I think many people thought those funds were to be used only during the COVID-19 shutdown emergency. Yeah, thanks, Gary. It's very interesting how the Democrats have attempted to use this global pandemic and unprecedented crisis in our country's history as an opportunity to reshape our election laws. And I think uh, all you need to do is look at that first effort pushed by Democrats. Luckily, it wasn't codified into the final law. But Democrats absolutely attempted to not only mandate national all-mail balloting, but also legalize the collection of what we call ballot harvesting, which is the third-party solicitation and collection of ballots. So uh, it if they had gotten their way, it would have been major changes to the way America conducts elections. But even though it hasn't been made national law yet, many states, as you just noted, are doing it, starting with California. And a big part of mail-in balloting is also, as you mentioned, third-party delivery. Tell us about that and why we should be concerned. So ballot harvesting is, uh, is this kind of, it's been in the shadows for a long time in American elections. But California, ahead of 2018, became the first state to legalize the practice by which somebody can come to your door and help you uh, fill out a ballot request form. And then they can also then come to your door and then collect the ballot after you've received it and filled it out. And then they promise to deliver it to a polling location or drop-off center. Um, it's interesting because while California has said the practice is legal, uh, many states actually say it's illegal. You may remember the election in 2018 in which a U.S. House race was not certified because a Republican candidate was found to have used that same practice. In North Carolina, it's illegal. In California, it's illegal. But I think the, the main concern, right, is the idea that, um, you know, you wouldn't trust someone, you wouldn't just hand your wallet and say, hey, take this to the bank for me. But uh, but Democrats are now asking people to trust their ballots to these political operatives. Another push is to eventually allow people to cast their ballots right from their smartphones. Now, that seems reasonable, convenient. 
So, Eric, what's the risk to election integrity with that voting method? Well, it just depends on how effective the states have been at developing technology. Uh, one of the things I realized in the research for the book is that America remains a third world country when it comes to election technologies. Some states like West Virginia have successfully used aspects of blockchain technology to do pilot programs for mobile voting, specifically for members of the military from overseas. But um, I'd be very surprised to see states be able to ramp up the technology so quickly. I mean, these, this is, we're a country that struggles to even just use regular uh, ballot counting machines. Many of those machines are decades old. So uh, to, to fundamentally shift the way that we might be able to do uh, cell phone voting, hey, I, I support anything as long as you can do the technology and do it safely. But then, you know, uh, who's to say that the person that owns the phone is the person ca uh, casting the ballot? There you go. And all of us remember those hanging chads, don't we? Well, two summers ago at the DEF CON Hackathon Conference, remember an 11-year-old boy managed to change election results on an imitation Florida state voting website. That's an 11-year-old boy did that in 10 minutes. So how easy is it to alter election results electronically? What do we need to do to secure electronic votes? That's a great question. I think it's one of the reasons why so many people are pushing for paper ballots, right? I mean, while the election databases may be vulnerable to hacking, uh, the only safeguard I think you have against that is to make sure you have a verified paper ballot as a record, because as far as I know, 11-year-olds or other foreign actors can't manipulate those yet. Some states now are doing away with voter ID laws. Right here in Virginia, Governor Ralph Northam recently signed legislation repealing the requirement that voters actually show an ID before casting their ballots. And I know the argument has always been we need to make it easier for people to vote. Voter ID laws disenfranchise people who don't have IDs. What do you think about that? Yeah, there remains this tension between uh, voter accessibility and voter security. But the reality is this. There's no evidence that requiring voter ID has infringed or diminished uh, the, the productivity of minority voters. In fact, many states, including Georgia, saw increases in minority voting after implementing voter ID. And the sad fact is that voter ID is one of the few safeguards that we have. I think it's far from sufficient, but it's one of the few mechanisms we have to try to ensure that the person that's casting the ballot is actually the legal voter on the voter rolls. Uh, I mean, if you wanted to get on an airplane or purchase an alcoholic beverage, or even ironically attend the last Democratic National Convention, you would have had to show a driver's license. So I find it a bit ironic that uh, many Democrats don't feel like you should have to show an ID in order to cast about the most sacred act in American democracy. Okay, I'm sure we'll be hearing more from you as we get closer to the general election. Eric Eggers, Research Director of the Government Accountability Institute and author of Fraud, How the Left Plans to Steal the Next Election. Thanks for being with us, Eric. Thanks, Gary. Attorney General William Barr is under fire for dismissing the Department of Justice case against former Lieutenant General Michael Flynn. Both former Attorney General Eric Holder and former President Barack Obama weighed in, saying that Barr is delegitimizing the DOJ. Some Democrats are calling for Barr to resign. Well, here with some insights on this and other issues is someone who deals with Washington politics every weekday morning is co-host of Fox and Friends. Brian Kilmeade is also a host of the Brian Kilmeade radio show and author of a number of books, including his latest, now in paperback, Sam Houston and the Alamo Avengers. Brian, it's good to talk with you. 
And we'll get to your book in a moment. But first, it, it seems that Washington just thrives on scandals, especially during an election year. And we've had Russiagate, Spygate, Ukrainegate, now Obamagate. You cover this every day. What do you think is going to happen with all this? Is it about to blow up in our faces, resulting in more investigations, indictments? Well, let's see. I want to see what the DIA has in terms of uh, the unmasking of different Obama officials of uh, would-be Trump officials. I mean, is uh, not Eric Holder, but Loretta Lynch was uh, the attorney general at that point. Was she doing it? Uh, was Sally Yates doing it? Why did the President Obama know about it? They really believe that President Trump had sold out to Vladimir Putin? And if so, is the way you handle it, uh, Gail, going for Michael Flynn, not dealing with it directly? Hey, President Trump, well, you know, President-elect Trump, uh, we have all these reports. Let's see if we can deal with it. Well, maybe you could just uh, help me out with this. Instead, they surreptitiously have a Keystone Cops-like approach to this, where uh, Peter Strzok, having a feral Lisa, Lisa Page, is talking to Michael Flynn, telling Michael Flynn he's not under investigation. He actually is. They tape the whole thing. He knows they're taping the whole thing. Nobody takes notes of the interviews. It is unbelievable, the series of events, to the point where things are turning, I think, Trump's way. And your colleague at Fox News, Britt Hume, uh, recently said that Russiagate was the worst journalistic fiasco that he's seen in his 50-year career. And how likely are we to arrive at the truth? Or is this just election year politics as usual that we're seeing? I think we're going to find that the truth, because I think Rick Grinnell is, uh, goes for the jugular, and that, that's the truth. And I think Attorney General Barr, as you may have heard and seen, he couldn't care a lot about his approval ratings. And we're in an election year, and time's running out. And they know if they don't get this thing done and come to the conclusion now, it very well could be buried forever if Trump does not win re-election. It will be. On the subject of leadership, your latest book, Sam Houston and the Alamo Avengers. Now, I've read it, Brian. It's excellent. Very easy read. And it's not just about Houston, but American heroes. Davy Crockett, Stephen Austin, Travis, Bowie, others. Now, these were great leaders, but as you point out, they were flawed men. You refer to them as second-chance men. So tell us what you want people to learn from them. Uh, number one, they were resourceful. Number one, they met the moment. Number two, they weren't perfect. Uh, that's probably number three. Number three, they weren't perfect. I mean, you had uh, Sam Houston. He had a lot of courage, but it had to be calculated. He was reckless. He had to go over a series of things that happened in his life, from his military training to his early days when he was wounded three times um, to other mistakes he made. He was a reckless guy. William Barrett Travis was running from something in America that wasn't too good. He was trying to start his life over again. Jim Bowie had some bouts of the law and many, many fights. He was fearless defender of America and a war hero in his own right. And Davy Crockett was a legend. They wrote about him in his, in his life. He ended up writing his own biography. He was bigger than life in his time. The only person bigger maybe was Andrew Jackson of his generation. And they ended up dying, fighting uh, brilliantly and valiantly at the Alamo. And because of that, people still visit. They stream into San Antonio. They have to go. And it goes to show you, you know, you don't win all the time. But it's how you fight sometimes that will define how you're remembered. But I wanted to go past the Alamo. I would say, say outside Texas, you go, what happened after? Oh, well, Texas got their freedom. Well, how? And then you see Sam Houston, the right man at the right time, to get a bunch of um, headstrong, revenge-minded Texans to follow him and do this horrible thing called retreat, the runaway scrape. And then he knew he had one fight, and that one fight, win or lose, would be the only fight he had with Santa Ana, the leader and general, the president and general of his men. And he was able to shape the battlefield in a way that put a, pulled off an unfathomable victory. And what I added in the paperback was him trying to keep 
the Confederate uh, Texas out of the Confederacy when he was governor of Texas. And when that didn't work, he left. And when he left, Lincoln reached out to him through a telegram and said, go back. I'll give you 50,000 troops. Just keep Texas out of this war. And Sam Houston said, no, unfortunately, uh, the Confederacy will lose. Hundreds of thousands will die, but I can't stop it. And that's what I added to the paperback. Yeah, that, that was amazing. I, I found that very interesting because I did not know that, and I'm a student of American history. Brian, yeah. finally, on a personal note, you've gone from Washington to Jefferson, Jackson, now Houston. So what's next? My next project is going to be, working title, is uh, uh, The President and the Freedom Fighter, How Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass, Unlikely Friendship, won a war and made America a more perfect union. Brian Kilmeade, Fox & Friends co-host, author, and your latest book, now in paperback, is Sam Houston and the Alamo Avengers. Brian, thanks for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Go get him. Gap year? Some new polls show that 10% of high school seniors say they won't bother with attending college or university because of the coronavirus. And Campus Reform reports one in six students say they've changed plans to attend college full-time. Well, joining us to set us straight on this campus reform, digital reporter Eduardo Naret. So what does this mean for colleges and universities, especially, I'd say, the smaller ones that may see a decline in tuition revenues this year? Well, it's devastating, and, and it's devastating because it's not just one poll. So since the coronavirus broke out, a number of higher education research and data firms have been doing surveys and polling of students. And we've covered those at the Leadership Institute's campus reform. And like you said, uh, we've shown about 10% of high school students have said they have already made alternative plans this upcoming fall and will not attend four-year institutions because of the virus. You know, other numbers in that poll show that colleges could face up to a 20% decline in enrollment this fall. And for a small school uh, that doesn't have that many students, you know, a small college here and there around the country, that could end up shutting them down permanently. A lot of schools can't survive if they face a 20% decline in enrollment. So it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. But like I said, could be devastating for many schools around the country. Well, even larger universities may have to lay off some professors, I guess, if they're not tenured. Uh, so what will it mean for students? Well, it's going to be interesting, like you said, large universities as well. A lot of them operate on a semester-to-semester -semester budget. You know, tuition serves as their operational budget, so they're going to see some hits from this too. But basically what students are saying is they're now looking more critically and thinking more critically about higher education than they ever have in the past. So instead of these four-year institutions, they're looking at non-degree programs. They're looking at online education because a lot of the ones we have spoken to have told us, look, we did not sign up for an online education. We understand what the virus is doing. It has hit us financially. And so if we're going to go into the fall faced with online learning, we're going to either take some time off, we're going to pursue something else, because we are not going to pay tens of thousands of dollars a year to learn from a computer. Well, on that, the online experience, polls show that college students don't really like that, especially if they've been on campus, I guess. They like that interaction of college life, you know, going to the football games, debates, other things, uh, all the activities. So how do you get around that with online? You can't do it. Absolutely. And there, there's some other aspects of online learning that many of us have forgotten about as well. You know, the ability to ask a question in the classroom, to speak to teaching assistants, to have those tutoring services in and outside of the college campus. And so when you remove that from a lot of these students, the students who've had the chance to experience the college campus, they say they'd rather put things on hold instead of pursuing it. And then when you talk to a lot of the high school seniors who, again, have faced the financial impact of the virus, they don't want to sign up for that. Look, 
An online education has its merits, but it wasn't meant to replace traditional in-person learning altogether. An online learning is something that could be efficient and less expensive than a traditional degree. But if these colleges and universities are going to charge students the same rate for an online degree as they would an in-person education, uh, you know, a lot of students are going to say, count me out. This is not what I want, and I'm not going to sign up for it. And online, you can't go to the football games, which I know uh, in my college experience, enjoying the big house on a Saturday, fall Saturday afternoon, was just a wonderful experience in college. And I know here on the CBN campus, uh, Regent University says it will be holding on-site classes this fall, and many other universities say they will do the same. But do you still think some students frightened by COVID-19 will stay home or shift their experience online? Again, we're going to see some students do that, but I would say it's mainly for financial reasons and to avoid the online learning. In terms of being concerned for the virus, there was initial concern from a lot of college students we talked to, but as more data has come out showing that students are less of a risk from getting seriously ill or, or potentially sadly even dying from the virus, a lot of college students are ready to go back. And this is why it's the perfect time for schools like you mentioned and other schools across the country that are saying, we want to open in the fall. They have the time right now to do that. There are creative ways that schools can open up, albeit not the same way as before, but they can begin to put plans in place right now so that come August, some of these schools can open up. I guess they'd have to have smaller classrooms or lecture halls or something where they space them out. I'd, I don't know how they're going to handle that, but that's up to them, I guess. What are the chances then, Eduardo, that some students may just say, look, I'm going to forego college indefinitely, and if they do, what's that going to mean for their future and our nation's future? Again, I think we're going to see a high chance of that. And as we've been saying some time now at Campus Reform is that the coronavirus could upend higher education as we know. We could see some changes that are permanent here because of the virus. And they can be good and bad. So a lot of these students may choose to jump into the workforce, pursue trade schools, pursue non-degree programs, as opposed to enrolling in a four-year institution. And if they come from difficult financial backgrounds, that may be the smart decision for them. Uh, alternatively, we may see schools react to the virus and say, look, we realize over the years we've been charging too much. Students aren't interested in that anymore. Maybe we need to offer different programs. Maybe we need to offer other incentives to attract students to campus. So there are some positives and negatives about the situation, but it's going to force everyone in the equation from students to these colleges and universities to rethink what they've done in the past, and they're going to have to find something that works in the future. The COVID-19 virus is still spreading, so are states reopening too soon? The virus is still a threat to the health of our people, and our hearts go out to those who have lost their loved ones. But the cure to the pandemic cannot cause greater hardship than the virus itself. The American economy is tanking, unemployment is at record highs, and healthy people are being punished and prevented from earning a living. People like 77-year-old Owasso, Michigan barber Carl Manke. He's been cutting hair at his shop for 60 years. Now, on May 4th, Mankey reopened for business in defiance of Governor Gretchen Whitmer's lockdown order. You know, I had gone uh, six weeks without a paycheck, with no, with no money coming in. I've always worked. I've never looked for handouts. I don't even know what they are. I had somebody call me and say, well, why didn't you get on food stamps? <laughs> well, you know, I, I don't want food stamps. I want to work. Rut row, George. Here comes the law. So how many state troopers does it take to serve a 77-year-old Michigander a citation? I count six here. No ill will. Mankey knows the troopers were just doing their job. But really, Governor Whitmer and State Attorney General Nessel, you're going to criminalize cutting hair? Mankey says he's taken all the necessary precautions to protect his customers from COVID-19. Masks, 
six feet distancing, hand sanitizer. But Governor Whitmer isn't satisfied. The Hill reported her response in a Twitter video. I expect people to follow the law. These executive orders are not a suggestion. They're not optional. They're not helpful hints. Governor Whitmer, you say you expect Michiganders to follow the law. But executive orders are not actually law. Only the legislative branch of government can make and pass laws. The Michigan State Legislature did not pass or approve your restrictive orders. In all fairness to Governor Whitmer, she did allow some workers to return to their jobs on May 7th, mostly those working outdoors. Now she's expected to lift some other restrictions later this month. But what about barbers like Mankey? Not yet. His work is still considered illegal. But a judge did deny the state's request that a restraining order be issued against Mankey. His shop can remain open at least until a court hearing is held. And Mankey is unlikely to be arrested. Apparently, Whitmer and Nessel have learned some lessons about bad publicity from Texas and the case of Shelley Luther. She was sent to jail for prematurely opening her Dallas hair salon. Remember that? Pandemic or not, forcing Mankey's Barbershop or Luther's salon to remain closed is an unconstitutional taking of their property. It deprives them of using and adding value to their business, their property, and harms their ability to earn a living. It seems that cases like these have lawsuit written all over them, don't you think? Folks, at some point, protecting society from the virus must be up to individuals, not government. And that means we have the responsibility to do the right thing to protect ourselves and others by following social distancing guidelines. Government can and should only do so much to protect us. So as America begins to reopen for business, let's look to God's protection. Let's not forget the golden rule as told to us by Jesus in the book of Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Well, that's it today from the Global Lane. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, and Twitter. And until next time, be blessed.